This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. Science fiction writer William Gibson is known as the creator of the cyberpunk movement with the novel Neuromancer. His recent novel, The Peripheral, is now streaming as a series on Amazon Prime, so it's a good time to look back on his origins and the origins of the cyberpunk movement. On February 4, 2003, I interviewed William Gibson in the KPFA studios while he was on tour for his novel, Pattern Recognition. Pattern recognition, William Gibson, is not science fiction. However, it's part and parcel with all your other work. Did science fiction become reality or what? I mean, it's very much in keeping with works like Mona Lisa Overdrive and other works that are set in the future. I think of it as being what I've always done, but more overt. It's what I've always done with the, the future skins removed. Well, skins in the sense of video game design. You can, you know, you can reskin a computer game and make the make your wookies look like elves or vice versa. I started writing science fiction with the very clear assumption that I was not writing about the future that my work would be read one day as being about the period in which it was written, as science fiction invariably is. I think, and I think that was a, a level of, of self-awareness that a lot of science fiction writers hadn't come to. So I've been threatening, I think, to write a book like this for three book tours now. It, it would always come up in interviews, and I'd say, you know, I could write a book set right now that would have exactly the vibe or affect of everything I've always done, maybe more so, and I really wouldn't have to make anything up. When you talk about a kind of science fiction then as a metaphor for the present time in which it's written, that would make Neuromancer a metaphor for that. Have you looked at Neuromancer lately? Mm, I don't go back and reread my own work, but it always seemed fairly obvious to me that at one level, Neuromancer was a fable of Reaganomics. It's set in a world that's what you get when you don't have any more middle class. It's just like very poor people and very rich people going Darwinian on each other. Do you think we're heading toward that now? I mean, how prophetic, even though it was a book of its time, how prophetic is a book like Neuromancer 20 years later? Science fiction is only inadvertently prophetic, and and my take on science fiction has always been that it's not prophetic. It, it, it occasionally it'll get something right, but the texture is always wrong. I mean, who thinks about Wells' shapes of things to come today, and how accurate is that? I've always thought of science fiction as a wonderful tool for the possible apprehension of an unthinkable present. As a character in in pattern recognition says, 
the present's gotten too too short and too too incredibly brief for us to have a place to stand to to spin those big Wellsian futures and Heinleinian future histories, or at least for me to do it. I, I don't really see how anyone else could do it. No corporate futurist will risk going past about three years at this point, and they only do that with alternative scenario planning. Well, I get the impression that what, in the end, when we look at it from 10 years from now, let's say, and we look at the events on September 11th, every so often there's a catastrophic event that forces us to realize that any future timeline is shifted, that there are paradigm shifts that happen. Yeah, and when paradigm shifts happen, the history that went before it changes. Everything that went before must be reinterpreted in the light of the catastrophic event. So you lose your history, too, although history is only a fiction, I think, because it, it changes. The, the, the past that we have today is not going to be the past that our great-grandchildren are going to have for us. William Gibson, pattern recognition does deal with the present day, or rather actually takes place insofar as I can tell in the winter and spring of 2001 to 2002. Main character is named Casey as Edgar Casey, which I guess is uh, some kind of metaphor, or is that just a little joke? No, it's it's um, sort of none of the above. I, I can't call the characters into anything like full being for my own purposes until they have names and the process of arriving at the names can be literally emblematic so that Case or Casey, she's pronounced both ways by the character, either way by the characters in the in the book. Her name has a more, probably more to do with how it looks typographically, how it works on the page as a logo for me, than it does with any associ the association with with Edgar Casey and and it, she in fact says when someone asks her she, why she's named that she says because my mother was a Virginian eccentric and she's never been willing to tell me why why she did this and so in a sense her father is a, a Virginian eccentric too, being me. That's why she's called that. I don't see any of my stuff as really operating at, at a level of lugubrious symbolism. I really believe that the reader, the reader's experience of an interpretation of the text is, is absolutely as valid as the author's. The guy you're talking with in some very real way, doesn't write these books. Like I can't, I can't go from how I am as a social being to how I am when I write these books, just like toggling, toggling a switch. The work of writing these books is getting to the part of myself that, that does it. And if it's working, the part of me that is a, a social being in the world, just sort of looks on in amazement that it's happening. But, and the trouble with that process is that the guy who does write the books is, is really unreliable and won't, won't turn up on a, a, a daily basis. 
And so I have to go there and sit in front of a computer every day on the off chance that the author is going to come in. And appear. <laughs> and, and appear and, and give me some pages. I've heard authors say, um, you know, when asked, how do you write a book after they've written 10 or 15, their response is, I have absolutely no idea. Yeah, well, I think that's a very honest response. I have less idea. Uh, the longer I do it, the less idea I have of how it, how it happens. I think the improvement is that I come into to greater acceptance of the eccentricity of the process. I, I don't fret about that quite as much anymore. William Gibson, your book Pattern Recognition does have <coughs> certain themes which maybe uh, resonate in the mind of uh, William Gibson, the social being, as opposed to William Gibson, the guy sitting in front of his computer waiting for William Gibson, the writer, to appear. Uh, among the themes are uh, logos, advertising. You said it yourself with uh, Case or Casey, primary character, but also uh, the idea, as you mentioned in an interview, of old media versus new media, celebrity, cultural criticism on, on writ large, and uh, in particular, and I want to get into this in a couple of minutes, your view of Russia which plays a major role in pattern recognition. To start, let's talk about this idea of old media versus new media. What do you mean by old and what do you mean by new and how do the two clash? The one sort of one constant in in my view of the world at large is that the majority of change is technologically driven and that this is actually not that new and 20th, 21st century, a phenomena that it's been going on that it's been going on that way for a while. Technologies aren't legislated into being. They, they just arrive through some magic of applied science and the, the free market or military industrial competition. They, they arrive and then they change things. And the ways they change things are usually unintended by the people who designed or invented these technologies. Each medium is a way of perceiving the world. And I think that when we change platforms, when the big reel of tape goes away in favor of the cassette, and when the cassette goes away in favor of the CD-ROM, something happens, and we don't quite know what it is. There's some modality of knowing and being human is lost, but loss is part of change. You can't have change without, you can't have change without having loss. So if there's a kind of underlying tone of elegy through my work, which I sometimes think there is, I think it's simply because I live in a time where change is endemic and we're always losing stuff. But at the same time, I trust that we're always getting new things. I keep thinking of something I, was, I mentioned to you before we went on the air, which is that I now edit via my computer at home, yeah. and that requires me not to come to KPFA, so I lose my social interaction here. Yeah, something well, that, is lost. That yeah. was an, that's an un, unintended but very, very 
personally powerful side effect of a new technology that you do your you, you do your editing at home and you don't you don't come in to the actual radio station where there's always been a culture of there being a radio station and and with a, a fully more fully realized digital radio it might not even be any radio station at some point yeah, yeah at some at some point and those are the things that big things that really affect how how we experience life but nobody plans them and it's the 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 sum of those cha- those changes that really change things for us probably that change things more every day for us than this like huge nodal point events as Laney called them in in the set of novels that I just finished with does the chat room or the communication on the internet change things? I mean, how does that work? I mean, that's a major part of your book, Pattern Recognition. The internet, which is a completely, internet is a complete accident. The internet wouldn't be there if, if a Department of Defense think tank project hadn't coincided with a bunch of, of borderline acid head computer kids in garages in California inventing personal computers. This is like the least likely collaboration in, in human history. And it generated something that I don't think the, the government or any government in the world would have allowed to come into existence because it's, it's just too... Too volatile and too peculiar. I mean, if you'd presented the internet to the U.S. government as a, as a possibility and say, if you take these steps, we can do this, it would never have happened. They would have tried to control it, and it wouldn't it wouldn't have happened. The change from that is is fra- It's like it's fractal. It's it, it's ti- it, it, it's this huge wave of tiny, tiny changes. It's sort of, I think, building. I have no idea what the Internet will be like even in, even in five years, and I don't think anyone else does either. Nobody's quite sure what it's even, what it's even for, if it's for anything. It, it may just be that it's, it's going to be where we go to do all our stuff. That seems to be where it's headed. And the result is, I see, a certain lack of physical communication. On the other hand, you know, buying everything online has not happened. It's, you know, from a sales point, it's just, you know, kind of like an online catalog or a 3D yellow pages. I mean, it it didn't replace stores. No, it hasn't, you know, it hasn't replaced stores and... And we haven't. We've turned out apparently not to need the goggles and the gloves, that those <laughs> big '80s icons of virtual reality. All you need to have virtual reality is sufficient interest in what's happening on on the screen. You don't need any any wraparound wraparound reality. So we now have lots of people who live in virtual reality most of the time they're awake and don't even know it because they don't, they don't have the goggles and the gloves. But 
something's going on with it, and it's still changing, and it's still we're still finding out what what we do with it. That slammer worm went from zero to global saturation in ten minutes. I was like the fastest ever. That tells me something's going on. I'd love to know who thought that was worth doing. William Gibson, I'd like to talk a little about your career and about the entity or non-entity known as cyberpunk. You grew up in, um, first you were born in South Carolina, your father died when you were six, and your mother moved you to southwest Virginia where you discovered science fiction and became, I guess, a science fiction reader and fan. Did you go to conventions? Did you get involved in fan life, or were you just kind of like sneaking at home and reading Robert Heinlein on the I knew slide? about it. I, I got involved in it to the extent that I could as a 13-year-old living in an isolated isolated little town. I, th- I think science fiction fanzines were like the internet on mimeograph paper in a way. Very slow internet. So... I was involved with that a little bit, and it la- my sort of golden age of science fiction lasted for about five years, in sort of puberty time, which I think demographically has been how it works with science fiction for most people, or it used to be how it worked. So I was told by publishers when I started that the, they had a demographic of young boys, and they were good for about five years of buying SF, which... I just kind of chose to f- ignore that. <laughs> but that's what the publishers believed. And that was my that was my experience. But the thing that, more than anything else, the thing that turned me into the writer that I am is that I discovered my experience of discovering fiction was essentially that I discovered Edgar Rice Burroughs and William S. Burroughs in the same year. And I discovered Henry Miller the same year I discovered Robert Heinlein. I was reading Kerouac and, and Ginsburg at the same time I was re- you know, starting to read Bester and Robert Sheckley. And I had no teacher. For me, it was like all of a piece. Not that I thought that Ginsburg was writing science fiction, but I mean just this like – to me, this was like world literature. It was everything I'd ever – I'd ever found, and I liked Ginsburg, and I liked Sheckley. So I didn't start in that that kind of hermetic SF universe where there's science fiction and the mainstream, the mainstream being everything in, in all world literature that's ever been written that's not science fiction. Nothing bugs me more about the the subculture of science fiction than that particular use of the mainstream. Well, science fiction, how does it compare to the mainstream? Well, the mainstream is a lot bigger, and it's a lot older, and it's a lot more various. And it really, you can't, you know, and, and it, it's absurd. The conversation is absurd. <laughs> That's the point where I would break off and go and get a beer or something. People classify because they're marketing, aren't they? I don't know. They, it, it varies from, from nation to nation. The British don't distinguish between 
novels and science fiction novels to the extent that we do. I don't know whether, I don't know what that is. I don't know whether it's that maybe Michael Moorcock won the war when he was editing New Worlds or, or maybe they, you know, because they had a, the example of Wells or because Mary Shelley wrote the first science fiction novel. But they just don't do that. It took me, uh, I think it was six or seven years before Neuromancer was even mentioned in the New York Times review of books. And then it was just mentioned in passing in someone's article about, well, let's catch up on what's been happening in science fiction for the past 20 years. It was reviewed in the London Times the day it was published by Victor Golantz in, in London. And it was reviewed very, it was taken seriously and, and it was reviewed very well. And that difference has been consistent for me. Uh, Penguin UK, my British publisher, hasn't had the words science fiction on I anything I've published for four or five books. They just like, really, they're just novels. Germany makes more of a distinction than the United States does. In, in Germany, being a, a science fiction writer or being, being labeled a science fiction writer is prob probably gives you a pretty good idea about what it was like for guys like, like Dick or for anybody publishing as genre SF in, say, the 50s, that you're just not really a writer. William Gibson, you moved to Vancouver curious what kind of effect did moving out of the United States have in terms of your worldview and in terms of your view toward your, your writing? Did that move you outside so that you could see things slightly differently? I mean, when you, when you sent your manuscript to Terry Carr, who was starting up at the time uh, a new Ace Special series, when you sent that first manuscript, how connected were you with those science fiction people? The sequence was a little bit different. I had I had published, at the point I met Terry, I actually, I think I had actually met Terry somewhere a couple of times before, but Terry's, Terry's talent scouting approach that produced Neuromancer came after I, I had published uh, a handful of short stories, and, and I think I was on my second sale to Omni, which was like the the big hoo-ha sale uh, if you were a science fiction writer in those days like they actually gave you almost a thousand dollars for a short story whereas the digest size magazines gave you like 59 dollars <laughs> you couldn't if you went to the if you went to asimov's sf you could buy your wife some roses if you if you went to omni you could buy her a television set i was a big shot because i had sold two stories in a row to omni and so that got terry's attention and he he approached me at a convention and and said How'd you like to write a novel? And I said, oh, I, you know, come back in like five years. I, I'm honing my licks here. and I, I don't know how to write a novel. I'm just trying to do short fiction. And he said, now, here, I'll write you a check. Here's a thousand dollars. I'll give you another if you actually finish it. You have a year to do it. 
So that was that was where that novel came from, and it's, I went away and worried about it, and it took, uh, I think it took a year and six months, and in the end to do it, but I had like no idea how to write a novel, which is probably something that it really had in its favor. Like a lot of Neuromancer's peculiarity stems from the fact that it was written by a guy who didn't know how to write a novel. It's like premature. <laughs> it's like wildly <laughs> premature. Somehow it, it worked out, but you're, as to effective living in Canada, the expatriate experience is a good thing. It seems to be a good thing for writers. You get different perspectives on, on your own country. And because I've lived outside of the United States, but right beside the United States for so long, I've wound up having a kind of, of dual expatriate nature in that I can feel of this, of the United States, outside of the United States. I can feel of Canada and outside Canada. It gives me an interesting approximation of that supposed anthropological impossibility of like actually being outside of my own, own culture. For someone who deals in cognitive dissonance, it's probably not a bad thing. I would think not. During that period, uh, there were a bunch of <clears throat> science fiction readers and fans led by Bruce Sterling down in Austin who somehow stumbled on your work and um, kind of conceived you as the guru of this, uh, of this trend in science fiction called cyberpunk. Uh, I read somewhere that you actually termed coined the phrase cyberspace. Is that true? I coined it. I coined it for a short story called Burning Chrome that, that was first published in, in Omni, and, and I chose it over the, the uh, much less euphonious info space. <laughs> Good choice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, wouldn't, you know, those info punks wouldn't have flown either. Did they contact you? How did, how did... No, no, it was completely organic. It was like history, history is organic. They did not exist. And in a, in a sense, neither did I. I had met John Shirley, another writer who was associated with, with the, the alleged cyberpunk movement. I, I met John Shirley prior to the onset of my, my short fiction career, and Shirley actually teased me and bullied me into writing my, my first short stories because I presented myself to him as a writer and because he was a, a published writer, published actual paperback books. And I said, well, I'm a writer too. And he said, what have you written? And I said, well, no, nothing really, but I'm kind of working on this story. And he would have none of that. And I had to write a story. And then I wrote another couple of stories. Sterling knew Shirley or was in contact with Shirley. Probably hadn't ever met him at that point. Sterling sent me a, a note of appreciation for a story I'd published somewhere. So I knew that this guy existed in Austin. And when I got the note, I realized that I had actually read his first novel, 
which Harlan Ellison had had edited and published a couple of years before when Sterling was like 16 or something. And that Sterling, Involution Ocean, was one of the first, well, it was one of the books I read when I was kind of trying to take the measure of where science fiction was at in the, in the late 70s. I then went off because I was like kind of, by then I was like trying to pursue my own career as a science fiction science fiction writer, I went to the World SF Convention in Denver. And I think that in some way, it, it really feels to me as though that was the beginning of, that was the beginning of my career. And a huge part of that was meeting Sterling, who happened to be there. And we ran, we ran into one, we ran into one another he shared my distaste for where science fiction seemed to me to be at at that point. That the it was as though what I the bluegrass I remembered from my childhood had been turned into Shania Twain, and bluegrass had in effect <laughs> was worse than that because it was as though bluegrass had been outlawed. They just weren't buying it. There was no nowhere to nowhere to go. And while we're at that point, I have to say that I I always saw I always saw cyberpunk as actually as a roots movement of of some kind. But it it never I don't think that was ever really part of the that wasn't really an overt part of the rhetoric. Sterling was a very very interesting guy to run into. But the simple fact that that I met somebody who shared my discontent was huge. And uh, I read Burning Chrome, the story that the cyberspace first appeared in, in a room set up for an audience of 200 where there were only four people. And two of those four people were Sterling and his wife. And I'd never read my work to an audience <laughs> before. And they got it. They totally got it, and and that was really that was really exciting. So that was so good that I went down to Austin at the first opportunity and hung out with them and met met some more of their friends. At that point, there was no the word cyberpunk had not crossed anyone's lips except to go back to that Denver Worldcon. Gardner Dozois had created and, and chaired a panel at that convention called Beyond the Punk Nebula. That was an interesting panel. I was, I was not on it, and I don't think Sterling was either. I can't remember who exactly was on it. Nobody who's associated with the subsequent movement. But I remain convinced that... that Dozois secretly fomented the entire, I'm serious, he secretly fomented the entire cyberpunk phenomena somehow by some weird karmic mojo at that convention. He, as, as an old and, and unregenerate new worlds type, new wave type, Dozois somehow put the bug in people's, people's ears. So I was making, I went to a couple of conventions in, in Austin and I met 
I knew the Sterlings. I met Lou Shiner. I met a couple. I met a couple of other people who didn't turn out to be writers, but were were sort of central, central or peripheral to that scene. There was still no mention of cyberpunk, and there was no sense of it being a scene. I'm absolutely positive about that. When someone, I don't remember where it came from, but it was essentially journalistic. It was journalistic and it was within the subculture of SF. Someone called this group of people that I hadn't even thought of as a group of people, but who these people I was associating with in that context called us cyberpunks. And I'm sure that my, I'm absolutely sure that my immediate reaction was, was to cringe in sorrow because I knew that somehow that it was the end of the party. Because I, I knew from the history of subcultures that when you're labeled from the outside that way, if it sticks, you go from being the people who are just doing what you do to being something somebody else calls hippies, it's over. Like I had lived through that. My, I was older than these guys too. So I knew about, I knew about the label. And I, I was like kind of, oh no, it's happened. And I looked around and everybody else was just like looking bright-eyed, <laughs> perky. <laughs> and they're like, we are cyberpunks. That is so fucking cool. We are cyberpunks, dude, and high-fiving each other. It just, that part of it just took on, took off from there. But my, my reaction to it after that was all well, like, okay, whatever. <laughs> okay, really. Like, you know, and I never, uh, I never took part. I never really participated in, I never participated in any of the rhetorical shenanigans and I, I never uh, you know I never signed the manifestos and and I don't think I ever actually even wrote I scarcely wrote for the anonymous and scurrilous cheap truth which was was the scandal the scandal of its day but Nonetheless, nonetheless, the thing the thing took off. But as to and I still run into people, I run into journalists who don't really know that much about science fiction, and they say, "Well, you and the cyberpunks changed the face of SF." And I always go, "No, we didn't. It's still got the same ugly, bland sort of midwestern face that that it ever had. We just did something." on the periphery of it. I'm not even, you know, in terms of like what impact that had on the main vein of genre SF, I can't see that it had had much at all. I, I get the impression now, I interviewed uh, last September, interviewed China Mieville, who was part of a new group of British and American writers and I th who, who write serious adult science fiction fantasy. Yeah. Uh, that's more fantasy than science fiction. It's, but it's hard to say. I mean, yeah, I know who I know who he is, and I would say that my guess is that he, his DNA is, is like 
you know, his DNA runs through me back to Moorcock and Ballard. It's scarcely been contaminated with anything from the main body of genre SF. Those guys are like, he's like this pure, kind of purebred critter. And, and I don't think anything that's been going on in, in, uh, in genre SF in the United States over the last 30 years has had much effect on him, except cyberpunk. And cyberpunk is like a direct lineal descendant of, of the British New Wave. He named, because um, from my perspective, science fiction, I couldn't, I couldn't read it outside of an occasional book here or there. And he said we're in uh, a renaissance, proceeded to reel off a whole bunch of names, the only one of which I really knew was M. John Harrison. And it occurred to me that there was this parallel track of science fiction written for and by adults dealing with serious themes that most of the world, including the science fiction world, maybe knew nothing about. Yeah, I would say that's that's uh, not far not far off the mark. When I got myself a British publisher, like Neuromancer, got me got me a British publisher, and, and they encouraged me to come over there and and see them and promote promote this book promote this book I had written. And when I got there, it was like I was home. There didn't have to be a distinction between SF and cyberpunk. None of that was necessary. It's like it was like the law of return or something. <laughs> like like I got there and they knew immediately what I was, and I wasn't anything new. I was just a new writer, but I wasn't like like some kind of wild new thing. I like they recognized my my literary DNA. They sort of said, "Oh yeah, Edgar Rice Burroughs and William Burroughs." They didn't even have to say that. They just took it for granted. And that's the the cultural that's the cultural difference. Because of the the economics of translation and a lot of other historical factors. British SF is the only non-American SF that's ever had any impact on American science fiction readers. It's just like relatively little SF gets translated. The membrane is poor, completely porous in the other direction, so any other language you might, that you might happen to read in, you can get, say, William Gibson in, in translation. But we don't, you know, we don't know who the great Danish SF writers were, for instance. But the British, we can read, we can read British, and they changed us. They changed some of us. I know they changed me, and they changed Sterling. One of the hallmarks of like how you you would identify in the the days before cyberpunk, like <laughs> when when it was really happening, how you could identify a fellow traveler is he knew all about Moorcock's new worlds and he had read he had read everything J.G. Ballard ever wrote. He knew about Burroughs. There were and there were a lot of musical touchstones, but 
but the the literary subcultural touchstones were like like British New Wave. That was it. And the other people in SF never heard of that. They'd never heard of that, and they'd never probably never heard of any of those writers. And they only knew Moorcock as a as a guy who wrote a million sword and sorcery books. Elric. Yeah. William Gibson. You know, when I think of pattern recognition, a non-science fiction book being marketed as science fiction, or a book like Prey by Michael Crichton, a science fiction novel being marketed as mainstream, the entire world kind of explodes. It's like this has nothing to do with either. I mean, it, it, it's this bizarre, bizarre, I don't know what you'd want to call it. You know, it's like the entire field has gone oxymor- oxymoronic. Well, novels. It's, it's novels. I don't think pa- pattern recognition isn't being marketed as science fiction that, that I know of. <laughs> At least not, I hope not, not in the United States. Uh, Putnam's plan was just to put it out there as a novel because it's not set in the future. It has two inherently fantastic elements, but only two. And they're and, minor. Yeah, and they're minor, and they're, they're neither, neither is explained with the, the rationale of applied science that I regard as, as being necessary to calling it, calling it SF. It's, they're there, but they're like uh, Central American fantastic fantastic realism. But it's not actually, I mean, it's kind of, I think that's a, an interesting distinction. I don't think it is being marketed as science fiction. It's being marketed as a book about the present by a guy who previously has written books about the future. That said, I think that, that I, I, I suspect that uh, there'll be a certain number of readers who buy this book, read it, and enjoy it, and never realize that it's not set. In the very near, in the near future. When I was reading it, I realized in reading it that it is a William Gibson novel. It's not as if like Doris Lessing stepped out of her realm to write Shikasta. Luckily, she stepped back in afterward. But there's no difference in that sense, as we were talking before, between pattern recognition, Mona Lisa Overdrive, other books, Neuromancer, and other books, other than a progression of William Gibson's career and changes over 20 years. That was what I was trying to find out, or what I, I guess what I was trying to prove. And I wanted, I was trying to prove my own, one of my own theories about what it was I'd been doing all along, which didn't seem to me to be what people kept telling me that it was that I was, that I was doing. And I kept saying, no, it's, I, I'm writing about the present. And just because it says it's 2031, it's really about 1981. That was a conscious part of my program from from the start. I knew that from I'd been an English honors student. <laughs> I knew that science fiction. I'd read a lot of academic criticism of science fiction. I knew that science fiction was was almost always always written about in terms of when it was written. It wasn't written about in terms of when it was written about. It was written about in terms of when it was written. William Gibson, two questions. First question, okay, cyberpunk, movement, non-movement, most of the authors continued to write. Did it just kind of dwindle out? Did it merge with this new wave of British and American writers that most of us have not heard of? What do you think happened, or was it just? Well, I think I, I, my 
sense of what happened, what happened with cyberpunk is that, that there was briefly, there was briefly a literary historical entity called cyberpunk. That lasted for a while. As soon as it started to be viewed as a sub-genre of SF, I didn't really didn't want to be associated with it because I had enough trouble being identified with a genre, <laughs> but I didn't <laughs> want to be identified with a, a sub-genre. I think an SF probably quite wisely or instinctively just treated it as a subgenre. Look at our strange little cousins with spikes on them. They're, they're cute. And that contained whatever energy was there. Not, not that there was necessarily a, a lot of energy, but where cyberpunk, uh, to use a word that I don't really trust, where cyberpunk, the meme, went and how it went was it went out, it went out into the world and did a number of very, very interesting, interesting things. It became a, a, a sort of, for some people, a kind of actual political stance. So if you talk to the people who founded the, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, they'll talk about their roots in God help us cyberpunk philosophy. But it mostly did, and where I think it is today is it's like a flavor of, that's not quite the word, but it's like a flavor of popular culture, a modality of popular culture. So if you say, did you see that new video? And your friend says, no, you can say, well, it's kind of cyberpunk. Your friend knows what you mean. You know, it works that way. That's how it works in the language. That's how it really works in the language. And that's not about the literary historical moment that we associate it with. But looking at its broader usage, it's like it's one of the, the Pantone cards of popular culture. And so when James Cameron wanted to do Dark Angel, he pulled that Pantone card and gave it to the designer and said, it looks like this. William Gibson, you've now written Pattern Recognition, uh, hopefully broadened your audience a bit. Where do you go from here as a writer? Well, the great thing about being a writer is I have no idea if, if past experience holds with this book tour something I will bump into, probably three or four different things I will bump into in the course of traveling around will give me the nod as to where I'm supposed to go next. And that's the way it's always worked before. I mean, I, I wrote uh, those three bridge novels because I looked out the window of my hotel in San Francisco on a book tour on a cloudy morning and saw the top of one of the towers of the Bay Bridge rising out of the, rising out of the fog. And that was the, that's where those books came from. It's, like, it's a crazy way to make a living. You've been listening to an interview recorded in February 2003 with science fiction novelist William Gibson. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. <laughs>